Hello everybody, welcome. My name's Penny Francis and I'm here because I have been a fan of the Handspring Puppet Company since 1985 when I saw them do a very small scale marionette performance in France uh, which could not be more light years from the production of the war horse that they're doing here now. I've watched them grow, I've watched them do different kinds and techniques of puppet. Uh, I've seen their collaboration with the artist William Kentridge and one way and another I'm one of their most ardent fans and I think they know that. Um, anyway, what we're going to do now is just find out a little bit more about the company and then uh, talk a bit more about the actual puppets uh, and then we're going to bring Joey to life. Um, and I'll start off by asking Basil how you came to name the company Handspring. Uh, Penny, it was, a, uh, it was a pretty hard job naming a company, it's always hard. Um, but we finally chose Handspring because um, Sergei Abrotsov, the famous Russian uh, glove puppet artist, said that uh, the soul of the puppet lies in the palm of the hand. Um, and the further away you get from the hand, i.e. when you start using string puppets and, and you're up there and the puppet is down there and you've got no contact with the puppet directly, uh, the further you get away from the soul of the puppet. Um, and somehow we felt that, we, we believed that too. We were starting a puppet company in South Africa. We thought we needed quite direct um, uh, control of the puppets. We felt that string puppets weren't really appropriate for the tough uh, South African conditions that we found ourselves in back in 1981. So uh, uh, Sergei's ideas were, were really very uh, important to us. So our logo is a, is a fountain coming out of the palm of the hand. Some people thought we were a religious organization. <laughs> Quite neat, just the fountain coming, it means a lot. And uh, why particularly did you want to do a puppet company rather than a theater company? I, I, I've been a puppeteer all my life, so, so I didn't know how to be an actor. Um, and uh, I tried to give up puppetry when I studied at art school, I, tr I studied sculpture. Uh, but after a couple of years, the lecturer started saying, this is an art school, you've got to stop making puppets. Um, uh, uh, and so straight after art school, my first job was in the Space Theatre in Cape Town, uh, which was formed by Ethel Fugard. And there was a puppet company there under the leadership of Lily Hertzberg, who was connected to the puppets of Eastern Europe. And she was a big mentor of mine. And... Uh, I began my professional career as a puppeteer then. And that has been going on since 1981, you said? Yeah. yeah? I forgot to mention my mother was a puppeteer, so I got it from then. And, and Basil, you, you also trained as a fine artist. I trained as a sculptor, and we were at the same university, and Adrian, whenever Adrian was doing kind of uh, pink ostrich puppets, I was kind of watching, kind of going... <laughs> Uh, kind of really, I, I, I hated puppets at that time. Um, and then we moved to Botswana together, and 
he, I was working at the Art Gallery, National Art Gallery, and Adrian was teaching theatre at the university, doing extension work with, with uh, puppets and theatre in villages. And he went on a buying trip to Johannesburg one year and came back with a strange African puppet, which I'd never seen before. And I started doing, because I was at the museum, I started doing some research into this puppet, and I found that it came from Mali, and that there was a really ancient tradition of puppetry in Mali. Um, and I wrote to the, the person who'd sold it to Adrian and asked for more information, and he said, well, I've got a whole collection. And I said, well, couldn't you bring them to the National Museum and Art Gallery in Khabarone because we'd love to have them, um, and he did. And then the director there bought this collection, and I was ended up curating these extremely colorful, interesting sculptures, really, that were from an authentic African tradition. And during that time, I really uh, started to change my ideas about what puppets were and how interesting they were. And when Adrian, in 1980, suggested that we return to South Africa and start a puppet company, I was kind of ready to say, yes, let's try this out for a couple of years. Two things come out of that. One is that it is a fact that nearly all the great puppet companies have their roots in fine art. Uh, an awful lot of puppeteers have been trained in sculpture and painting um, and scenic design. And the other thing is that if you go to almost any country in the world, you will find that there are pre-theater um, roots also in puppetry, uh, starting from the religious to, uh, into the secular, which is uh, what we have now. I wonder whether at uh, some stage you made a philosophy of the kind of work you wanted to do? We, we, when we started out, uh, the only uh, audience for puppet theater was a child audience, and we didn't want to do Alice in Wonderland, which uh, and, and Winnie the Pooh, which was the standard canon of children's theatre in South Africa at the time, um, we, we wanted to, you know, try and look for African stories and even write our own. Uh, so we, we, we wrote our own for a while. Uh, in 1985, there was a state of emergency in South Africa, and, and the schools that we played in uh, forbade uh, independent artists going into government schools. And so we were forced to relook at what we wanted to do. And I'd been sitting on a, on a text, the play that Penny saw for five years. Uh, we'd always felt imposters in the theater, although we were working in the theater, but we had never trained as actors, and so uh, we didn't believe we were strong enough actors to do a, pl a play for adults. But after talking about it for five years, we thought, well, we'll never do it unless we do it. So we put on our, our most lucrative children's play about ostriches. And <laughs> and used it to subsidize the adult piece, which we played at the end of a three-week season at the theater in Cape Town, the Baxter Theater. Um, the two actresses that we employed to play the two women in the piece uh, were, were seriously nervous that their career in the theater was about to end because um, they were taking part in a play for adults with string puppets. Um, but fortunately, the play was very strong, and uh, the, the audiences from day one loved it. And it, it eventually took us to France, where we met Penny, and we also encountered all of the other fabulous uh, adult theater from Eastern Europe, which was incredibly inspiring and gave us fuel for the next, next beat of our career. And 
And I've always felt that there's something very special about the kind of plays that you do, the kinds of texts or scenarios that you choose. They're always, it seems to me, quite edgy, quite rebellious. How, how, do, you, how do you find um, a common ground for, for researching a text and going ahead with the performance? A text is always problematic for us because puppets are best at movement and text is always um, hard. It, it's, it's hard to make a puppet uh, talk along, uh, speak along speech because very often they don't have lip, uh, lip movement. Um, they, they're really good at move, moving but words are, are difficult. Sometimes we, we write our own words or commission them. Uh, sometimes we work on a pre-existing text, like our production of Wojciech, uh, which was based on Buchner's Wojciech. Our Chimp project, for instance, was a completely new text. It was a piece that we did for the millennium, and it was about the rehabilitation of a signing chimpanzee who could, who'd learned how to use human sign language back into the wild. And it kind of asked the question, could such a chimpanzee teach language to the people around it? Because we'd found that one chimp had actually taught her daughter her, uh, her sign language. Um, so it was a play about that. We certainly had to write the text for that. Mm. Um, I'd also, we, we, we come out of the, the, the space theater and the market theater tradition, which, which, which was a kind of a protest theater tradition, which South Africa was very strong at at one point. When the political situation changed in South Africa, suddenly our subject matter disappeared overnight. Nobody wanted to go to, 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 to theatre that was overtly political any longer. Um, but, and, and so the, the, the years after 1994 uh, have been, a, a, in South African theatre terms, a time of rediscovery of the, of, the, of the kind of issues that everybody else is grappling with in the rest of the world. Uh, and we're in that kind of process ourselves, I suppose. Um, but with, with each new production, I think we do want to try something new, something that challenges the puppet a little bit further. Uh, when we began our collaboration with William Kendridge, for instance, we began an association with a, a, an artist who knows how to uh, animate films. Uh, and uh, we, we discovered that the puppet in silence, with other information working around it, uh, invites the audience into their wooden head. You, you start to be able to see the puppet's thoughts by seeing what's happening on the screen. Um, and the idea that the puppet can think is, is, is an ongoing exploration for ourselves. Um, In fact, stillness, um, the, the puppet's thoughts can only really be read by the audience when, when, the, when the puppet is not really moving. So we saw it happen first time when we had Wojciech looking out at the stars and a starry background behind him, um, the, a, a comet came in and joined the dots of the stars and created, drew in, in white on black, a, a napkin on top of which was a human heart. And Kentridge made the napkin close over the heart, reopen, and in its place there was a knife. And immediately you knew that this puppet, even though he was doing nothing but stare into uh, the stars which were in fact behind him on a screen, was thinking about murder. Um, and we, we, 
Our, one of our most important investigations as puppeteers is an investigation of stillness. Um, <clears throat> that's when you can see into the puppet's mind and, um, and it's kind of when the puppet takes, takes on the stage and becomes itself. I think as people we always very, we lack confidence in ourselves. So when you have this prosthetic thing on the end of your hand, the puppet, we tend to lack confidence in the puppet three times more than we lack confidence in ourselves. And so we tend to make the puppet move an awful lot. So one of the things that we try to do is to find stillness and to pare down movement. Um, that's, if you're talking about philosophy, that's mm -hmm. certainly one of our one of your tenets. Tenets of our um, stillness. The, the puppets in all the shows I've seen, except the first one, have been of a certain size, haven't they? So that you're mm. able to do them in quite large spaces, but I think never quite as large, perhaps, as uh, the ones here in, in, in Warhorse. How do you... How do you decide on the aesthetic of a show? How do you decide what kind of puppets and how they're going to be designed and made? I think each, each play uh, det uh, determines, you know, makes you think about, about, about that in a different way. With the Easter Rising, it was a, a, a piece about two women on an isolated farm uh, hiding an activist from the police. And we chose to make little uh, string marionettes worked by visible uh, manipulators dressed in black walking next to them. So these little people uh, having polite conversations with a policeman uh, were somehow guarded by these giants dressed in black next to them. It was, a, it was a, an effect which we never planned, but which we were very happy to hear the audience perceived. Um, the, 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 the little figures seemed very appropriate to the big political story they were telling. They were, they were like victims in a way, or caught up in, in a subject that was much bigger than themselves. Uh, we, 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 we've, with Kentridge, we have worked into a, a size of rod puppet which is close to the Japanese bunraku figure in that it's about as big as a, a wooden figure can go. And making puppets out of wood is something I, I truly love to, love to do. Uh, and if you go any bigger than that, they, they start to get too heavy. But subsequently to that, we started work on a play about a giraffe in order to collaborate with the puppeteers from Mali, which we eventually managed to do after 20 years of knowing about them. Uh, we collaborated on a story about a giraffe that went to Paris from Egypt. Um, and the puppet ended up being a five meter tall giraffe. Uh, <laughs> and, and now it seems like we've been typecast with animals and stuff. <laughs> that one was called the tall horse. This one was called the war horse. Yeah. And we're, and we're just wondering what the next one's going yeah, to be, Tommy the seahorse perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Underwater ballet. Um, what I didn't say was that we are leaving some time at the end of the session for questions and answers from you. Um, and uh, if you've got any ideas of things you want to ask, uh, you will get a chance. Um, would, would you like to say a bit more about the making, the crafting? Of, of, of the warhorse puppet? Of the, not just Warhorse, but uh, in general? Yeah. Um, how, did you, how did you decide on uh, the, well, the I, way that the Warhorse we can see here I, it was going to be made? I think, I think we should get into looking at that. Um, the, the, when we got the call from Tom Morris over the phone, 
he said he's got this story about war horse. Uh, it's about a boy who, goes to, who falls in love with his horse, and then his horse is sold to the war, and the, war in, the, the horse ends up on the, the enemy side, the German side, uh, and, and sees the war through a horse's eyes. So he's completely neutral. He doesn't take sides like people do in a war. Can I just interrupt and say this is a book by Michael Morpurgo, yeah. and when I read it, I thought this is impossible to stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't read it yet. I just thought it was perfect. <laughs> then when I did read it, I, I saw it's full of battles. How do we do battles? You know, you need 150 horses for a battle, um, and we're going to have maybe six if, if we're lucky. Um, but anyway, that's that was further down the track. Uh, the, the, the first task, really, was to see whether we could have a life-size horse on the stage. And the first image uh, we needed was, uh, we needed to know whether the horse could be ridden by an actor. And so we would like to demonstrate the first image of the first workshop of War Horse for you. We are very fortunate to have the three guys who actually worked Joey in the play over here. I'll introduce them to you. <laughs> Craig Leo, the head of, of Joey. <laughs> Toby Ollier, the back legs and tail of Joey. <laughs> Tommy Luther, the heart of Joey. <laughs> so this is what we started out with. Um, our first um, prototype horse. <laughs> Kindly lent us by the, 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 the storeman in the National downstairs in Drum Road. We had to, we had to persuade him to let his, his, his ladder out of the store. Okay. I saw this in um, their laboratory in South Africa, and I thought, well, just getting it to England is going to be a major, major thing. Toby says we couldn't have got him a, 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 a less comfortable ladder. And we're going to ask them just to walk a short distance because, <laughs> I mean, aren't you convinced? <laughs> there was a gap in the, uh, in the stage here when at that same workshop we made a puppet uh, paper horse heads and everything, and we brought them onto the stage and they, we ran them around here and they looked absolutely fabulous. Um, Alan from Props had made also a mock-up of the full-scale body of a horse out of cardboard and paper, and a horse in this bare stage just seemed to be perfect. It's sort of like a circus ring. You know, it's, it's round. Horses have got distance to travel here. Um, and I'm going to move over here, my neck's going to come up. <laughs> and fortunately, Ray Smith, in her fabulous design for the show, has kept it clean like this. She does everything else on the screen and everywhere else. Okay, um, ne next step was to go back home to Cape Town and see whether we could raise the center of gravity of the horse. Uh, because, as you saw with the ladder, we had Toby and Tommy's head sticking through the ladder. And we thought it might be a little comical, particu <laughs> particularly for, for the guy at the back, you know, when there's a rider in between. So, 
so <laughs> the spine was going to have to be higher, um, which meant the center of gravity was higher. We got two backpacks and put some planks between them and got our neighbor's daughter, who was just finishing school, um, to, to get up on top. And she nearly died of fright, but it, 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 it seemed fine. The, you know, the, the sideways wobble wasn't so bad. And then began the construction of the horse, really, around that possibility. Because within the horse, there's got to be enough space for somebody to move the, the legs and everything convincingly, but also not to compromise the look of the horse. So we built a prototype, uh, which when we brought it over here, it actually could do all the, all the job that was required of it, but it looked a little bit like a grasshopper with its front legs. Um, uh, and we went back to Cape Town and built the next lot. Um, but I think we should get everybody inside the horse and, and we'll take it from there. Hmm. We have to unclip you. Right, we can. We'll take the, we'll move the, the, the we'll take this one. If you want to learn more about the process of how this whole extraordinary show came together, um, this tells it all. Um, it, it's been written specially for um, the whole process from beginning almost to end um, of the show, and it's, it's really an eye-opener. Lovely stables they made us here at the National. I'd like to just talk about the, the, the emotional indicators of the horse. The tail is obviously vital. You know, it, it, shows, it shows the horse's interest in the world. Um, there's another one, the skin. Now, we don't have really a lot of skin, but if somebody touches the horse here... <laughs> magic, man. <laughs> 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 uh, the eyes were a, an important component as well. Uh, you know, there's a danger when you make eyes that they're too sweet and too uh, beguiling. But at the same time, the horses are quite abstract with the canine. I knew there had to be a focal point for people to sort of dive into the head of the horse. So these are pretty carefully constructed eyes. They have clear lenses over a deep pit, which is painted like an eye. So they're constructed like an eye, uh, although you can't really see it from this vast theater. Uh, but I think that you get the effect even though you can't see it. Um, the ears, of course, are uh, the most important uh, 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 emotional indicator of the head uh, because a horse indicates uh, fear and anger and uh, simply interest in the world through the, through the ear and they need indi individual movement. Uh, the movement of the ears took 25 years to work it out. Um. <laughs> and the, what's also really important, I'm sure a lot of you can see, is breath. Um, breath is kind of central to our puppet uh, movement philosophy. We, we often saying to puppeteers, um, uh, you need to breathe and believe that even from the back of the theater, you can see the puppet breathing when it's a person. 
So when Adrian designed these puppets, he designed a channel um, here. I don't know if it's possible at all to see it, but there's, there's a channel here in which um, the axle of the legs moves. So you can go right down and up um, to make the horse breathe. Um, that's also a really important emotional indicator for the puppet. So Joey, can we have a walk? Okay, you can stop there for a second. I'd just like to talk about that. Um, although you, 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 you're not aware of the job that each individual is doing there, they're each doing slightly different things. The back legs are the power of the horse. Um, they've got those big thigh muscles. And you, you can, you, if you look carefully, you can see uh, Toby sort of surging with those back legs. Um, And, and of course, uh, <laughs> when the first prototype arrived here at the National Theatre Studio, Toby Sedgwick, the movement director of, of Warhorse, was on hand. Fortunately, he knows a lot about horses, and uh, the, the, the walking of the horse, the one, two, three, four of the hooves, as it goes down and as you get it in the right sequence, even when you close your eyes, you can see a horse. Um, and the, 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 the footfall was very important to the discovery of the movement of the horse. Uh, we can, we, could you give us a trot? Okay, uh, you have to see the horse, uh, you have to see the play to see it written, we're not showing you that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, but I'd just like to show you one trick. Uh, the horse is also, it can, it can show huge delight in the world by standing on its hind legs. Trick. <laughs> Joey, such a tart. I'm just going to uh, have your chair back. <laughs> okay, Joey, here's an apple. Okay, you like apples, right? Huh? You sure?
He hasn't got any teeth, he can't eat it. After. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> They've got to go get ready for tonight. <laughs> Thank you, guys. How many of you have seen the show already? Uh, a sizable number. I've seen it twice. I recommend you see it again. Let me just say one thing. I saw it yesterday from the very back row of the circle, and I believe the horses breathed. I believe that I loved the snorting and so on, and they were magic, and I wept copiously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Anybody got a question? Yes. Yeah. The, the, the question is, how long does it take to construct an animal of this size, and what will happen to them at the end of the run? Um, the, prototype, yeah. <laughs> the prototype took four months, during which time we despaired quite a bit, um, because uh, we didn't know really how to make light enough legs uh, and flexible enough legs because uh, I don't want to give the story away to if people who haven't seen the show but one of the horses dies and has to fall over and there's the gravity of people inside it falling on the, weight, on the body of the horse. Um, and so we had to choose a flexible material and the cane seemed to be perfect. Um, and it took quite a while to redesign the legs so that they had a nice shape and didn't look like a grasshopper. Uh, from the prototype of four months, it took two months to make Joey and two months to make Topthorn. And we've been working on the show building-wise for 18 months. And, and as to what's going to happen to him? We hope that you love the show so much that they'll never have to be put away. <laughs> hope he'll have a comfortable home in between performances, but I'm sure he's going to be back somewhere in the world. Any, anybody else? Yes? <laughs> uh, good question. In fact, did you hear we're, that? We're making, Do we have just one horse, or is there an understudy? We're making eight understudy legs as as we speak, um, <laughs> because that's that uh, they have been quite problematic. We in the run up to the the opening night, the press night, we had some slight tragedies on stage. Once um, one of the hooves broke completely, and a thousand. Uh, people were focused on only the broken hoof, and we had to actually stop the show. And another time, we had a very long 35-minute interval whilst Adrian and I fixed one of the puppets. Um, and in fact, the, the, the legs and the feet have been quite problematic, so the, they've asked us to make some understudies. But I mean, there's a, there's, the a, there's a lot of pressure when you move into the theatre because there's suddenly a lot of backstage activity. I mean, the, 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 the horses have been working already for four months before they came in here, including all the workshops and the, the long period of training and rehearsals. But it suddenly we moved into the theatre and there started to be breakages. And there's a lot of backstage activity. People are getting changed. Uh, there are big set, uh, set props that have to come in and the, and the backstage space is limited. So that was the reason. The breakages seem to be settling down now. Lady, but yes? Do you 
Yeah. Did the puppeteers spend time in the field watching and observing horses? Um, we did a lot of research. We, we had a very exciting trip to the King's Troop um, in St. John's Wood. Uh, they took all their horses out onto um, Wormwood, scrubs. Wormwood Scrubs and we watched them exercising with gun carriages and the whole tutti. It was a fantastic day for us. We also went to a farm where they uh, breed rare breeds of horse and they harnessed one up and did some plowing for us to see that happening. They were big, big you know, draft, uh, draft horses. And we visited stables here with a new group of actors who had not done those things in a previous workshop because we've had successive visits to, to London over a period of two years. Uh, and recently we took a group of actors to uh, stables um, near Wimbledon where we, uh, we looked at horses and so on. So, and strangely enough, they were, they'd all booked to see the show before we went. The stables. I think we're getting a lot of horse people here now. <laughs> <laughs> Another question? Yeah. The lady wondering how they manage to be in Cape Town and here and have a business and other kinds of shows all at the same time. That's it's been it. very difficult for us actually because we are really a two-person company and we bring in freelancers um, as we do different shows. Um, and so I had to steal some time every morning um, to, to, uh, for administrative work with my computer and the internet uh, where we're staying and I quite often was rather ashamed at arriving a little bit later than I should have because we are having to plan ahead to the next thing. And we've got, we've got two shows next year and three shows in 2009 and people, uh, quite a cacophony of, of messages and requests and so on that I was having to deal with before coming here every day. Yeah, and we're not staying here for the whole run. Uh, we leave for Cape Town on Sunday where the weather is 28 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we'll be so sad to leave them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, it, it is a huge treat to be able to work in this theatre. And uh, the time spent here has been there? amazing. Sorry, Adrian. Sure. What, well, what, what do you look for when you're auditioning it's, for the puppeteers? It's a, it's a good question because there, there are lots of puppeteers in London these days. Um, and we, had a, we were very lucky that there was someone here, Mervyn Miller, um, who, who actually found us a wonderfully happy group and committed group of puppeteers who've almost become the priests of Equus, the priests of the horse. Uh, they've, they've been a, a wonderful group of very skilled people, um, great to work with, very dedicated to the work, very happy to, um, to work with us and uh, in this fantastic theatre. And in fact, that whole process was written about uh, by Mervyn uh, in a book which is already published called The Horse's Mouth. 
Um, so if you're keen to know more about the process of the making of the show, um, it's available at the uh, shop in the, the National here. Yeah, no pressure, but just go by. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and nowadays, the, the puppetry profession is, is quite a substantial uh, body of people with um, their own particular specialisms and training. Um, and I, I must say, Penny, Penny is, is the founder of, of the, the, the puppetry course at Central School of Speech and Drama. She's being extremely modest now, but she has started a whole movement in London. She's the doyen of English puppetry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Any more questions? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have thought about uh, the question, I wonder if a real horse has ever encountered Joey. I'd rather like to see Joey go back to the king's horse, visit the king's, uh, the king's troop. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see that happen. Just, I would like to, 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 to talk about an anecdote from the king's troop. It's, it, it, we, when we were there, we weren't quite sure what kind of relationships horses had with one another you know, when they weren't with people and whether they actually liked each other because it was quite important to inform our story, which is about two horses who like each other. Um, and, uh, and we did hear, you know, the gun carriages that they pull around, um, uh, 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 they, they run on, on streets and, the, and the, the metal rims of the wheels get very jagged and sharp. And there was a terrible accident in, in a public parade where one of the horses at the, at the head of a, a team was too close to the wheel of, of, of another carriage doing a scissors motion and the throat of the horse was cut and it died. Uh, there and then on the parade. Um, and uh, they told us at the, at, the, at the stables of the King Troop that five horses, uh, no, five is too many, um, the horses around didn't eat for five days um, around the stable of that horse. And from that we, you know, we got, uh, that one little piece of information was very important. Another piece was when um, uh, the, uh, one of our horses has a heart attack and on the farm with the cart horses, uh, the, the farmer there noticed that two horses in the stable, uh, one horse kept on barging the other one and ramming it into the wall. And he thought he's got to separate these two horses because the one is being too aggressive. But actually the one he was ramming into the wall was about to have a heart attack. And the other, the horse was trying to hold him up and eventually had the heart attack and died. Um, and so horses are incredibly sensitive to one another and, and one another's physical well-being. And all this information was fed into the play. Yes? Um, how do you feel about not actually manipulating these beautiful puppets? Huh. I didn't quite. Uh, uh, how did you feel how about did... not actually manipulating these puppets? That normally we would be performing, and uh, it's, uh, it's the first time in the history of the company than Adrian and I have not been in the show. So we're actually very jealous. We've been so involved in, in, in the making of the show here. It's been a, 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 an incredibly intense time and we, we, we know this, this building incredibly well. We don't know much about London. Um, but, uh, but the day that I realized it was the day just before uh, the, the week of press night, I suddenly realized on a Monday that by Wednesday our job was going to be finished and we'd be saying goodbye to these things that we'd been involved in for two years. Uh, 
And it was an incredibly emotional day. <laughs> I, I didn't like to look anybody in the eye that day. I, I think we're going to have to wind up now. Uh, maybe one more question? No? Yes, there's one. Does your next show contain animals? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, we're trying very hard not to have animals. <laughs> we want to see if we can do people still. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you all very much for coming, and thank you, Basil and Adrian. <laughs>